welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory, on the rocks, with Katie and Allie. Normally just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about famous women in history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Ariel Lawhan. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We're so happy to have you. Ariel is a critically acclaimed New York Times bestselling author of historical fictions who is here with us today to talk about her upcoming book, The Frozen River, which tells us the story of midwife Martha Ballard, who we just recently covered on the podcast. <laughs> so this is so exciting. Everybody's going to want this book. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into writing? Yes, of course. I do you think The Frozen River is my sixth novel I co-wrote four of them I wrote by myself and then I co-wrote one with uh, two other author friends mm -hmm. I have been writing for over a decade now I primarily focus on historical fiction I call it biographical fiction so based on either real people or real events I came to this career sort of sideways. I didn't train for it professionally, but it is the thing I have always wanted to do from the time I was really, really little. So this was the one dream, like the big dream I had for my life. And I get to do it. And it's the best thing in the world. Perfect. Well, I, you know, one of your other books caught my attention because it was about the woman who was like the Anastasia imposter, who we also talked about on our show once. And I love her story. So I was like, ooh, yes. that's on my reading list. <laughs> so that one, I will warn you, so it's called I Was Anastasia. Mm -hmm. And it's the story of Anastasia Romanov and the woman believed to be her most famous mm -hmm. imposter. Mm -hmm. Anastasia's story is told chronologically, beginning to end. And Anderson's story is told in reverse from end to the beginning. And then the two stories collide right in the middle. And that's when you find out if she was or wasn't. Oh, I love that. Wow, <laughs> what so a good. nifty way to write it. You Benjamin Buttoned the yeah. whole story. <laughs> yes. It's like Benjamin Button had a baby with Memento. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're here to talk about your other book, your newest book. We're so excited. And I also am excited because I did not love the cocktail we made for Martha Ballard when we covered her. So I felt like I got to redo it. <laughs> so this is called the frozen river. It is vanilla vodka, elderflower liqueur mixed together, topped with ginger ale and you garnish it with a maraschino cherry. So it's clear but with that strike of red, just like the cover of the book. Mm. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I need the recipe. Mm -hmm. ah, delightful. Much better than the, we did like a flip cocktail and it was like a whole egg mixed with milk and it was not good. Oh, maybe not so much. <laughs> yeah, it was very the funny thing is I have every book that I've written so far has had a specific cocktail in it, like just as part of the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Until this one. Apparently <gasps> drinking in the post-Puritan area was pretty boring. You had <laughs> you had cider, you had beer. Mm -hmm. it was like, oh. So Perfect. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you uh, filled in the gap for yeah. me. <laughs> okay. So before we dive into your book, we always like to set the scene for our listeners. So can you tell us a little bit about the time period that this takes place and specifically what it's like for women besides their boring cocktails? <laughs> yes. So this story takes place over six months, 1789 to 1790. It begins when the river freezes in Hallowell, Maine, and there is a body trapped in the ice. 
And it is really the story of Martha Ballard. She was a midwife, as you said, in Maine in the 1700s, famous for three things. One, she kept a diary for 30 years at a time when most women could not read or write. And it's really spectacular when you think about it, that here's a woman who chronicled daily life for 30 years when most of her peers were completely illiterate. The second thing she's famous for is that she never lost a mother in her entire career as a midwife. She went to her grave having never, never lost a mother in childbirth, which is an astonishing medical record. And then the third thing that she is famous for is that in the pages of her diary is the only written record of a rape trial that happened in 1790. So I take that rape trial and I combine it with a murder mystery. Um, I would say the fun facts about Martha are that she is the great aunt of Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross, and she is the great grandmother of the first, one of the first female physicians in the United States. Mm -hmm. The legacy that she left from a medical perspective is almost unmatched, considering that most people don't even know her name. Mm, I know. That's what we thought when we, we covered her. We're like, I can't believe we've never heard of her. She's so interesting. Um, and you're right that like there are these pieces of her story that she kind of just like weaves in in her diary. And one of the things that we were kind of focused on was the case of Rebecca Foster. So she's sexually assaulted in this town, something to do with like her husband and he's the pastor and nobody likes him. So I, but we couldn't find any more information on that case. I was so interested in. So can you tell us a little bit about the situation surrounding it and how sexual assault was dealt with at the time? So it is fascinating. Like I said, the Martha's diary has the only written record of what happened in that trial, what was said, what took place in the courtroom. There is one other mention in a historical textbook that the trial took place and then it records the verdict of the trial. What's really, really fascinating about this particular case is that it happened at a point in American history when a conviction for rape was a capital crime. So if a man was convicted of rape, they hanged him. But in this particular case, one of the men, and there were, in the real story, there were three men accused of doing this to her. One of the men was the town judge. So you add this extra layer of complication where they are already hesitant to hang a man for doing this. And then if he's found guilty, he's the judge. Mm -hmm. So it really exploded and it really stressed the legal system of the day, which for the record was like nil. The Bill of Rights had been passed, but not ratified. The Constitution, it was only the first five amendments and that was written just a few years before. The year this story takes place was the first year that the Supreme Court even existed and not until March of 1790 and there were only five judges. So we're talking about a moment in history where women have very few legal rights. Like, for instance, one of the things that comes up in the book quite a bit is that a woman could not testify in court unless her husband or father was present with her. Like, she didn't even get to have her say. The one exception being a midwife had special legal privileges that were not granted to most women because she was there delivering babies. And one of Martha's main jobs was if a woman had a baby outside of wedlock, she had to convince that woman to give the name of the father. Mm. Now, 
what's fascinating, the father was never punished. The mother was. Mm -hmm. There was no law in the books that would punish the father of an illegitimate child. The mother would have to pay a fine or spend a night in jail. And what most people don't realize, and this was really fascinating to explore, is that in the post-Puritan era, four out of 10 first children were conceived outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. Only one or two was born outside of marriage. You had lots of um, nine pound premature babies. (laughs) (laughs) So when you really dig into the post-Puritan culture, you're like, oh, the Puritans, not so pure. (laughs) Yeah, they talked a big game. Yeah. (laughs) So one of the men that is accused of raping her is found dead in the river. Yes, Um, that's how the story opens. Mm -hmm. Yes. So who is killed and what role does Martha play in investigating this crime? So there were, like I said, there were three men accused in the real story. I wrote one of them out of the story completely. Three was too many, just from a craft perspective, that was too many to juggle. So I knocked it down to two. And I killed one of them right off the bat. So she's dead. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it's the judge that has the trial. Martha gets dragged into this because part of what midwives did back then is they were, they were midwives. They delivered babies, but they were also coroners. Somebody died. You call the midwife and she comes and inspects the body and explains to you why they died. They were physicians. They were surgeons. They really covered the gamut of medical care. So in this story, we begin with this body floating downstream and getting trapped in the ice. And Martha Ballard is immediately called to inspect the body and determine cause of death. But what she finds is that the man who has been entombed in the ice is one of the men accused of raping Rebecca Foster. And she was the person that saw Rebecca Foster immediately after this happened to her. So The book follows the real story in that Martha becomes a key witness in this rape trial that has this undercurrent of murder trial as well. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we found so interesting about this kind of town was that there was a lot of religious tension that kind of seemed to play a role in the fosters being targeted. Can you tell us a little bit about the role that religion played in this story? Yes, I believe it was four months prior to Rebecca Foster's assault. Her husband, Isaac, had been basically fired as the town preacher. And he was really upset about this. They had a contract in place and there was a set amount of money agreed to for his contract. And he'd, I believe it was a five-year contract and he'd served as pastor for about two and a half years before he was fired. So he is appealing this decision sort of with the higher congregation in Boston Isaac Foster goes to appeal this firing in person. And it is while he is gone for a number of weeks that Rebecca Foster is raped. Mm. And then everything like the dominoes start falling in every direction after that, because Rebecca Foster ends up pregnant and she is saying, this happened while my husband was gone. This is a product of rape. And of course that also loops Martha back into the story in more ways than just the body and the rape trial. She is now in charge of providing medical care for Rebecca during all of this. Were there any women at this time period who ever got justice for sexual assault or was it always just kind of really unfair? 
So two things are true. Um, sorry, three things are true. The last man to be hanged in really then it was the district of Maine. It was not even a state. It was part of Massachusetts. The last man to be hanged for rape was, I want to say, two or three years prior to when this story takes place. So there had to be this incredible preponderance of evidence to get it to that point. And one of the horrible excuses often given was, well, no one saw it happen. And Martha's like, it never happens in broad daylight in the middle of the street. Like these things are always done in darkness. So it was really, really hard to prove. So yes, women did occasionally get justice for it. Another thing that is not talked about as much is that quite often situations like this never even got to the courts. You would have an angry father, an angry brother, an angry husband who just took care of business on his own. Like, wow. And that's the part that we don't ever find in the history books. This is... I mean, this is post-revolutionary America by a couple years. There's no legal system. No one's keeping track of people. So bad dude disappears. No one really asks a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And in this particular story, one of the underlying tensions is the dead man deserved to die. Yeah. And so how, like as an author, how do you keep momentum going when the reader's like, good. (laughs) And so for me, that was in a, you know, weird authorly way, the Mm -hmm. fun part to go, okay, it really does matter who is charged for this murder. It does matter who is convicted for this murder. How do we keep that going? And in this case, you have six suspects, all of them with motive to kill this man. And so each of those people in the story kind of has their moment with the spotlight on them. And all of them are people that Martha cares about. Mm -hmm. And she has vested interest in protecting from a false accusation and a false conviction. Yeah. Now, how did you find Martha Ballard? And when did you become interested in telling this particular story? I can tell you the exact date and time. (laughs) It was August 8th, 2008 at about 1.35 in the afternoon. I was pregnant with my fourth son and I was at the doctor's office in Texas where we lived at the time. And my doctor was late for my appointment. He had gotten hung up at the hospital on a very tricky delivery. So I'd gotten stranded in his waiting room. (laughs) This is sad, but this is true. I could have just rescheduled and gone home, but going home meant going and having to be a parent. The other three kids (laughs) were at home with a friend. (laughs) And by the time you get to your fourth kid, man, you're like, eh, they're fine. They're being watched. I'm going to sit here and read. Yeah. We're both one of four, so we understand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I read the book that I brought with me and I finished it. And then I read every magazine in the waiting room and I finished all of those. And the only thing that was left in the entire office was this stack of really scary pamphlets. Like, here's why you're going to die. Right. So I was like, Digging through this pile of pamphlets and underneath is a small devotional. It was called Our Daily Bread. And I flip it open to the day, August 8th, 2008. And it talked about Martha Ballard, this midwife in Maine who had delivered over a thousand babies. And I remember thinking that would make a great story. Mm-hmm. And so I, I ripped the page out of the devotional and I stuck it in my purse. I still have it. I'm not <laughs> sorry. <laughs> 
Um, but it took me a long time to come to, I actually wrote all of my other novels first. So I oh, came wow. up with this idea first and then I wrote all of the others in hindsight, like every time I'd finish a novel and it was time to start the next one, I go, okay, what am I going to write next? And I go to my file and I'd pull out that devotional page. And I was like, oh, I'm not ready. Yeah. So I'd put it back. And then finally I was ready. And the only thing that I can really explain is that I needed more time under my belt. Martha is a 54 year old mature woman. I needed more time as a wife and a mother. I needed to solidly hit middle age. Hmm. And I do think there's an element to which um, I think my kids needed to break me first. (laughs) Kids have not broken you yet. Yeah. You'll get it one day. They will break (laughs) you. It'll be fine. But the process of that makes you a different woman and it makes you see things in an entirely different way. Mm -hmm. And much of Martha's story in this book is the fact that she is a mature woman and she's been married for 35 years and she has all of these children and they're growing up and they're leaving her. And who are you at that point in your life when the lion's share of your life's work as a mom is behind you? Mm. Those are all things that are happening in the background of this story. Mm. And you find this pamphlet, you get or devotional, you get ready to start writing. And obviously this, the main source is going to be Martha's diary. What other types of resources did you use to research for this book? There are a grand total of two in the entire world. There is Martha's Diary, and then there's a biography called A Midwife's Tale by Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. Mm -hmm. It is the story of Martha Ballard in the context of the time frame, sort of the larger world that she inhabited. It was published in 1992, and it won the Pulitzer Prize for Best Biography that year. It's astonishing. Mm And you can get it anywhere, anywhere that books are sold. Martha's yeah. Diary, however, is much harder to come by. I wish I had, I've got it packed up where I would show it to you because it's packed with sticky notes and yeah. <laughs> I have completely desecrated it in my effort to create the story. But Picton Press published about 200 copies of it mm. in the late 90s. And you can find them, but there are hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Mm. I got mine at an out of print bookstore in Maine. Mm. copy and I had them ship it to me and it's to this day the most I've ever spent on any book (laughs) I read it and I poured over it and it's really fascinating we think of a diary and you think dear diary Mm -hmm. I did this today and this is how I feel but it's not that at all it's really more of a day book if you're familiar with what a day book is so she opens she'll give you the date day of the week the weather And then in very terse language, she tells you what she did that day, what patient she saw, what baby she delivered. And half the time, I I didn't actually count how many, but it's in the thousands. She will end her diary entries with this phrase. And it says, I have been at home. Hmm. And it's fascinating. Like It's my favorite phrase in the entire book because I wrote this during COVID. Hmm. Me too, Martha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I too have been at home. And as it's just a student of history, you look at this and you go, oh, she she worked her entire career in the context of working out of her home and her kids are there and her husband is there, and neighbors are there, and every other diary entry is such and such neighbor showed up and 
ate dinner and stayed the night. Like her house is this revolving door of community, not just her very large family, but every other family as well. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know where you are um, located. I know you said you were living in Texas for a little bit, but did you get to travel up to her hometown in Maine and like explore any of the places that she actually lived? I did not. I live in Nashville now, so I am in Tennessee close enough. But again, this the entire from beginning to end writing process happened during COVID when the world was shut down. Um, She lived in Hallowell, Maine, which is present day Augusta. So it's in that sense, it's easy to open maps and Google images and you can virtually go down the Hallowell River like you can see it. But everywhere she lived, her house it's gone. Those structures are no longer there. There is no memorial to her. She's found in libraries and archives, but there is no place in which you can visit Martha Ballard anymore. Mm. Well, you said, I think that's tragic. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you've just added a grand total of three. Yeah. Now you're three things (laughs) with her name on it. Yes. With our podcast four. Uh, (laughs) Just trying to get her name out. We have now we have now doubled the amount of resources. Oh, Martha Bell. Let's just keep that going for a couple years. (laughs) And one of the other things that I really loved about Martha's story too, because like we talked about how she was recording the big things that happened in the town, you know, the the murders, the the rapes, like these things. And but she was also keeping track of the economics of the town, which I thought was so interesting that it was so based in women's work. And, you know, a lot of the local economy was based and we're like, well, I delivered her baby. And then she gave me this amount of linen, you know, or seven chickens and a pound of coffee. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought that that was just so interesting. Did you put any of the town economics into the book? Yes, there's it's all in there. And it's really fascinating. One of the things that I got tripped up with actually in the copy edits of this book, my very last pass to the book, I realized, oh, God. I interchangeably use dollars and pounds. And I'm like, what? Like, I am meticulous about my research. How did I get that wrong? And so I had to unpack all of the boxes and go back through. And it took me that long to realize, oh, there was no monetary system in the United States. Mm -hmm. Whatever coinage they had is what they paid with if they had it. If not, they bartered. They swapped candles and linens or wool. There's a lot of entries in the diary that talk about, I got paid in flax, or I swapped seven pounds of flax for two tallow candles and a goat. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> and all of that. And it, so like the town census records, if you go back, her husband is there, you can see it's all in his name. You can see the taxes he paid. Her name exists nowhere in the town records, except when you get into like the the financials and the tax records. And it will be, oh, Ephraim Ballard paid $8 in taxes with flax. And you can look at the date and you can go back and check Martha's diary. And you're like, oh, the week before she harvested that and she combed that. So she was, I mean, really every woman in that town was essential in the economics. They just didn't get credit for it. Mm. Yeah. Well, and Martha also, she just saw so many people that like you're saying, the census were just wasn't really caring about. Mm-hmm. She saw all the people that weren't worthy of being put into the official records. And that was one of the things that 
we loved so much about her story. So we just love that, you know, you're doing this work to bring her story to more people because, you know, that's kind of what she was doing as well. Yeah, I think a lot more people are willing to pick up a historical fiction yes, because it's totally more palatable agree. and just to learn about someone like her where they can now go, oh, this is a real person. Let me mm -hmm. tell you about someone. Yeah. I so one of my favorite quotes about historical fiction, and I think why I do this in the first place, and it's a Rudyard Kipling quote. And he said, if history were taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. Mm, yeah. I think that's what good historical fiction does is it reminds us, oh, this really happened. Mm -hmm. This event happened or this person lived and when you do this for as long as I do, you realize how many people never make the history books. Mm. History is written with a very, very narrow view. Um, and most people are left out right. entirely. And so every once in a while, you stumble across a gem of a woman who just lived faithfully her entire life, helping other women, seeking justice when there was no justice to be found. And you go, oh, she is brave. I can tell a story about that. Yeah, yeah. that's totally so great. amazing. Well, well, thank you so much yeah. for coming and talking us to us today. This is released on December 5th. So yeah. in the coming weeks, right after Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. So it's perfect for a stocking stuffer or to yes. be wrapped up under the tree. That's so exciting. And it takes place in winter. So yeah. it's going to be so cozy to just, you know, read when it's really cold outside. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the book releases again on December 5th. So you can pre-order it now. You can request it at your local library, you know, do all of that. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about where people can find this book when it releases and where they can find the rest of your books? Yes, um, you can find it everywhere that books are sold when it <laughs> releases. If you would like me to sign a copy, I can do that. My local independent bookstore is Parnassus Books. So you can, if you want, you can order it from them and just note in the comments that you would like me to sign it and I can run up there and do that. Otherwise, it will be everywhere. You can also visit my website, which is ariellawhon.com, A-R-I-E-L-L-A-W-H-O-N.com. And all of my books are on there. They're all set in the past. One is about a missing judge in jazz era in New York City. One is about the last flight of the Hindenburg. One is about Anastasia Romanov. Another is about the most decorated spy during World War II. And the collaborative novel that I wrote with Christina McMorris and Susan Meisner is set during the Philippines, the Pacific theater of World War II. And it's about three nurses who survived that conflict. Perfect. Well, thank you again. We can't wait for people to go out and just get more into the story of Martha Ballard. Um, so thank you again for coming on. This was great. Thank you for having me. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye